Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are up in the studio. This is our first episode in the studio in months, Mike. Yeah. And uh, it's nice. It's somewhat air-conditioned. Uh, back to the meme wall. We can take all that in. Uh, we did record a winging it yesterday, so that was our first action back in the studio. And I actually produced that, and I got that to Peter. So today is September 6th. So if you guys are ever wondering how long Peter takes to get work done, um, you can look at the release date on that, and you will know how fast he worked. But uh, we are excited for campus to be back in full swing, uh, swing and uh, the faculty are back because we have some episodes we wanted to do for a long time, some guests we've wanted to get on. And Mike, you've been working on this one for a while. Would you say you had to guilt her a little bit? Um, I, how did I do this? I just You didn't say no, and I said, I'm going to take you not saying no as in, yep. You did. You started laying the groundwork in spring semester, and you let it kind of marinate over the summer, and then you hit me up at a, a meeting early yep. in the school year. So I, I, if someone doesn't say no, I take that as a yes. Yeah, so. and we, we've been working on some others, and uh, so this is hopefully the first in uh, a string of episodes coming up where we can have guests on, which is always nice because um, while we like our own voices, uh, it's nice to have some new ones. And now you've heard a voice. But who is it? Why doesn't our guest go ahead? Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Rebecca Parker Fidoa, and I am an English professor here in the uh, Department of English at Wisconsin Lutheran College. And this is the beginning of my 12th year as a professor here. And uh, they combine some of the schools at the college. So uh, the school is kind of like under, there's different colleges and then schools. And we're in the same school now, right? Now. We are. So, uh, we're schoolmates. Theology is with history and philosophy and English and German and Spanish. Is that everybody now? Mm-hmm. So we're going to have our first school meeting first, and we'll get to see what we're like in school meetings together. Should I'm excited. Fun time. We're yeah. Drink it in and see how it goes. <laughs> so you teach uh, in the English department here at the college, and what are some of the classes that you teach uh, you know, um, that are kind of maybe your regulars. Yeah, um, they're almost all my regulars, as weird as that sounds. We have a pretty regular rotation. Um, our English major is divided up into two strands. We have a literature strand and a writing strand, and I teach in both. Uh, the literature classes, I consistently do a Britlet survey, which is the second half of Britlet. It's a uh, French Revolution forward, basically till now, but I only get to like 1920 because there are a lot of books, a lot of authors. Uh-huh. So that's the survey. Um, I do a genre studies class in fiction, which is pretty broad. It's fiction. So I run it basically as a novels class and do nice. great books in there. Um, do a Victorian Lit class at the upper division level. And so that's kind of my pet class. I do a lot of Elizabeth Gaskell in there, who we'll be talking about today as well. Then I'll run the writing strand. Um, we all teach freshman English, so that's always a thing. And then I do all the upper division writing courses. So professional writing, creative writing, technical and scientific writing, um, the senior thesis for both the writing strand and the literature strand. Um, I hope I'm not missing anything in there. I, I don't intend to if I did. Well, good. And I think, uh, you know, we get to commiserate in the same way then because my classes are very paper heavy. And there's different types of faculty on campus. There's faculty that have a lot of tests to grade, faculty that have a lot of labs to grade, and faculty that have a lot of papers to grade. And so we're probably, uh, we each have our own impressive piles. At piles the of, of the papers. Semester. And even for exams, I don't give any multiple choice Scantron exams. And so I use old school blue books from the 1950s. And so I'll grade hundreds of essay answers um, the weekend before grades are due. And that's always a fun weekend. No better way to spend it. Love it. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about especially Elizabeth Gaskell today, but then also kind of the the vocation of writer and reader, um, why Christians should be interested in literature, uh, as we do with a lot of our disciplines. to, to look at those aspects. And uh, having made it through the intro, lest I make the introduction too long, um, before the disclaimer, just one last thing, we are a part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. Encourage you to check that out. Um, Thinking Fellows were just in Norway and uh, recorded some stuff over there, so that should be good. And uh, the Here We Still Stand conference is coming up, but tickets are going pretty quick. Uh, Mike and I will be out there. Mike's actually rooming with me now. We were each yeah, going to get yay. our own room, but... We've done this before. Yeah, so... Uh, this will be better than New York. If you're out there, um, stop by our room and have a, a beer or whatever, and we'll try to get you on the podcast if you've got something to talk about. 
Mike, why don't you give us that disclaimer then? This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism. Because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends. And don't let us get in the way. We're back with our free-for-all, and since we have you know a what I was going to do there, Mike? <laughs> interrupt me. I, no, because I said, Mike, do you want to do the free-for-all? And Mike said, yeah, I'll do it. And then usually, what do I sometimes like to do when we do that? Interrupt me? I start, and I do the free-for-all, so I was tempted to be like, I'll do the free-for-all and throw you off. But I'm going to be nice and just interrupt you. I won't take over. Are you, are you done? Yes. Have you amused yourself enough? I have amused okay. myself. I'm right. smiling. Since we have an English professor in the house, um, we're going to do a free-for-all that is going to be embarrassing to Wade and I, and we decided to list at least one book, maybe we'll get a couple in, of famous books that um, we should have read, we want to read, but we haven't read, and maybe even we pretend like we have read in conversations. And then and, and so. it has to be one that we have wanted to read, like one that we've always intended, not always, but intended to read for quite a while, but we've never gotten around to, and we really should have read. I like that maybe we even have pretended we've read because there's a lot of books I've done that with uh, <laughs> too. You want to go first, Mike, or how uh, I think we should let the guest go last. Yep, Tale of Two Cities. Because this is her vocation is reading yeah. books, so she's already said she, she probably has read all of them. Be embarrassed, I've read all the books. All the books. All of them? All, all of, them. of them. That's pretty good. Um, a Tale of Two Cities. Um, I heard it's good. I'm pretty sure I know the first couple lines or the first line, and that's it. In fact, all of it's Dickens, right? <laughs> it is Dickens. And I like most of Dickens. I re, I start reading and I go, oh, I don't like that. And so then I go, maybe later. And so I've actually, I think I've actually started A Tale of Two Cities and a couple of other ones of his and said no. He did David, David Copperfield, right? Yes. Yeah, I started These are always really long, right, Dickens? Did yeah. he write short stories at all or no? No. Well, he might have done some sketches, I think, in the beginning when he was starting out, but then it turned pretty quickly to novels. And he did serialized novels. He basically invented serialization as a concept. Really? And I didn't know that he was an editor and has a connection then with Elizabeth Gaskell. We'll get to in a second. Absolutely. But like um, uh, The Christmas Carol, you know, I like the Disney version better. With What about the Muppet version? There's a Muppet version? Oh, oh Mike. Oh, my goodness. Can I get that to you as homework? <laughs> I will do that. Do I, I don't have to. I actually have a very beautifully bound book of The Christmas Carol that we bring out every Christmas. Just to look smart? You just put <laughs> just it out there? Just to look smart, yeah. I'm definitely like, I want as many books as I can in the house. Like some of them are just like fake books. Like, I, sure. you know, that I cardboard. Makes you, you, know? makes you look but smart and cultured. Look yeah. So why yeah. that, that used to be a status thing in the 50s when the growing middle class, when they were building all the new houses. That's why houses built around the 50s, so many of them have built-in bookshelves, because mm-hmm. you wanted to be able to at least show. I would like books. a library where you have the, the ladder, the rolling ladder. You don't have to climb up and get the book that you know you've never read. That's a life aspiration of mine that nice. I will not reach. you got to have high ceilings. Yeah. I would like that. Yeah. i got enough books. I just don't have room for them. You made me think of a free-for-all idea for the holidays, by the way. Um, favorite Christmas movie. There you go. That's one That's we should do. That's a good one. I already know yours, so. No, you don't. Die Hard. Oh, I wasn't even going to say that, but that would be, that is what we watch every Christmas, right. yeah. You've said as much. So I'm, I'm, I, uh, Victorian literature, yeah, I'm not. Dickens can be an acquired taste. I yeah. liked him from the beginning, but I haven't even read all of Dickens. There's a lot to read, and I'm a Victorianist. Um, Tale of Two Cities, I think, is probably the easiest one not in terms of it's, the vocabulary but certainly it, the shortest right it's yeah. may or may not be the shortest but it's not 800 pages of sure. bleak house that's mm-hmm. probably my favorite dickens um it's the one i've worked with the most but i don't teach it because it's 800 pages mm-hmm. and i have to spend most of the semester doing that right. so i do teach tale of two cities um, which is a great opportunity to talk about the french revolution yep. with students as well too and 
talk about what Dickens is trying to do in terms of enlivening history for the population, which we're used to now because we see period piece movies all the time mm-hmm. and we're used to that. That wasn't necessarily the case for sure. the typical 19th century reader yeah. um, in terms of historical fiction. So, And so right, do you think writing has changed because of that, right? I, you know, a, a, an author back then who wants to do either a period piece or whatever really has to paint a picture where maybe an author today doesn't feel like they have to always does that change the writing I think so I'm probably the wrong person to ask about a lot of writing today Um, I read books up until about 1900 and then there's kind of a hard stop I read a few now for book clubs and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but um, I probably shouldn't make any wide sweeping statements about (laughs) 21st century Um, this is a podcast we make wide sweeping that's what you specialize in here I know I know what I've been thinking about since you said tale of two cities is I had it totally confused What's the H.G. Wells book? Isn't the one that's like a title like that too? Where they think the world's ending? Oh, um, it's on the tip of my and tongue. And then they read it on the radio and people thought yep, the world Yeah, everyone thought really it was happening. They thought the aliens were coming. I thought you were talking about that one. War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. I don't know why I'm confusing those two. That's okay. not the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Before we get to you, I have also uh, shamefully not really fully read A Tale of Two Synods by our colleague, uh, Mark Brown. So That's been sitting on my shelf for quite some time. It's, it's out there. It's yeah. out there. I have read some of it, but yeah. it's out there. I, if Mark is listening, I have read it multiple times, Mark, and I <laughs> thoroughly enjoy it. All right. What books are you embarrassed that you have not um, read and pretend that you I have? I would say one of the big ones would be John Steinbeck, because I do like Steinbeck, but never read East of Eden. Love Grapes of Wrath. Um, I've always wanted to read East of Eden. Um, our friend Dan Van Voris from Virtue in the Wasteland, now Christian History Almanac, will be very disappointed in me if he hears that. An author I don't think I've ever read anything by that I have always wanted to is Jack London. Um, and that's just not happened. And then another one I've never read is Tolstoy. Ooh. Really? Never read really? any Tolstoy. You would like that. I think I would. Very much so. Um, I have pretended to have read Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've not read Tolstoy. Anna Karenina was my recommendation. I've done the most with that. Is that the first one to go with, you think? I think so, but I'm biased toward it. Yeah. And I like Russian fiction. I like, right. So I got to do that one. There are a couple neat film adaptations of Anna Karenina from the See, don't say last that. No, I'm just going to watch too. it. Because I will absolutely just watch it if I... You got to do both. Yeah, but I like doing the book first, but I get super lazy, and then I'll watch mm. the movie. And then I'm like, I already kind of know what I watched the movie, and then I don't. I did that with the, I'm using a lot of dystopian stuff in sure. Christ and culture right now. And so the movie The Giver, I watched the movie, and then I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to read the book now. And I'm kicking myself for not reading the book first, because what if the movie's not like the book? You can never go that's, back. that's the most frustrating thing, is when you watch a movie... And you're like, that's not the book. They just changed a lot of stuff. You should do, I mean, would we all agree that you should read the book and then watch the movie? I or think that, that's the order. If you're a purist, but, ideally. Yeah, I think, well, how, certainly you're going to be disappointed either way. Sometimes. I mean, if they do something really interesting with the adaptation, sometimes things don't translate off of a page to a screen. It's a different medium. Yeah. So if they're making changes in order to make the art the equivalent mm-hmm. or better on a screen. There you know, could be rationale. Maybe I would you know, be less disappointed if I watched the movie and then got the book because usually the book has more details and stuff. Uh, and then that could so be. maybe maybe you should. You know, two current things though that I've watched that I should have just got the book first and read is uh, the first is it's on Amazon Prime, uh, Man in a High Castle. I want to. I want to look at that. I ordered the book. It's on my desk. I love the show. But I just don't know that I'll bring myself to watch the book now or read the book. And then the other one, Handmaid's Tale. Bought the book. Probably Same. not going to read it. And what's frustrating is uh, like Sheena, Professor Finnegan, who's been on the podcast before, will be like, this is different than the book. That's different than the book. And then I'll be like, you know, I should read the book. But I'm also like, it's on Hulu. Handmaid's Tale has been sitting on my shelf for quite some time because Atwood is, you know, 1980s, which is about 100 years after what I specialize in. So it's been sitting on my shelf. But, of course, I've been keeping up with the TV series, which I yeah. like a lot. I haven't watched the season yet. i got to watch this season. Ooh. It's, I'll be interested in your thoughts. Yeah. There's I, w- I went on a big movie binge because for Ethics and Christ and Culture, they do movie reviews papers so they can watch. But I, I try to make sure it's stuff that I've seen so that they're not watching something that has no point connected and <coughs> – but that's on the list to get back to. I got to do a season of A Man in the High Castle too. There's a lot of table setting in the most 
recent season of Handmaid's Tale. It's not as action-packed. Uh, I've thought about trying to read the book before I watch the next season, but probably won't. Ha- you know what I should read? The Bible. I should stop reading all these other books and it's read the Bible. It's a good Bible, one. But yeah, yeah. I've heard that. When that, that series came out, that cheap series, The Bible, I just kind of went around telling everybody that <laughs> I read the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. All right. We got to embarrass Woody. our English professor. Now, you do. You said Brit Lit. So I I'm do. guessing um, if you're like me, so I am historian by trade. I know very little American history. I do European history. I'm guessing American lit is probably maybe a. It's you can do it for fun, but you don't have as much time for it. But do you have one? And is it Brit or American lit where you go? I'm kind of ashamed I've never read it. I'm ashamed that I haven't read a lot of American lit because I am an Anglophile, so I'm over on the other side of the pond with my work, my research, all the stuff that you nicely set up there. Um, I guess one of the main ones, because it's a big one, would be Moby Dick. I should have read that a long time ago, and I, I have think not I've yet. Ever, I've ever read that either. I was supposed to in class. No, so I was assigned it in high school for sure. I probably read it. some of it. I mean, I get the gist of the whale metaphor. I've been around long enough, but I really need to <laughs> investigate further. Are there still cliff notes out there? Do you have students who use cliff notes? There are cliff notes. There are uh, spark notes or okay. kind of the... And I don't even mind students using them as long as they're using them as a supplement to yeah. reading the actual thing because if you're having trouble reading or understanding, go back and review. I go back and do plot summaries. I don't reread a 500-page novel every time right. I teach it. That would be time prohibitive, um, but it's the doing it instead. Yeah, I just remember Moby Dick was definitely when I did the cliff notes for it. <laughs> You know what would be great would be to like write cliff notes that actually don't relate to the book at all and then just watch students bomb. That has happened uh, not with cliff notes, but if students watch a film. And then they try to. Really, I've had students write exams where it's clear they watched the film <laughs> version because there's a major left turn from whatever happened in mm-hmm. the book. So mm-hmm. it's well intended, but a bit off the mark. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of film adaptations in my classes, though. Um, I offer film viewing series at night. And so after we finish the novel, reading first, then we get together at night and watch an adaptation. And then I'll show scenes from other adaptations of the same novel. And then we'll compare what translates from the page to the screen, what doesn't, why, why not, and get into some cool discussions that way. That would be a good free-for-all episode, too. Best and worst film adaptations of books. It's fun. Those are some really good and bad ones. Yeah. Next time. What else? Well, how, about, how about one... In British literature, where you really should have read. Oh, I've read all those. Moby Dick is British, isn't it? No, are you serious? Is it American? I don't know. It's American. It's American. No, it's about a whale. It is. Who wrote it again? None of us remember? (laughs) Mike is looking this up. (laughs) It's on the tip of my tongue. (laughs) I don't even remember who wrote. (laughs) What? uh, Does it begin with O? I'm I'm going to go on Wikipedia academic way. Melville. 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 That was it. Let the record show. (laughs) I'm the only one in the room who did not have her iPhone out looking. (laughs) That came from my brain. The record will also (laughs) state that she's the only one that's a a literature teacher. (laughs) I'll give you that. Give you that. All All right. right. Well, Mike, why don't, uh, what do you say we make our way to the main topic? All right. English professor here, and she did some doctoral good work. Ontologically, ontologically, or good according to within her discipline. Both, and um, she did some doctoral work, correct? Correct. Where'd you do that, Marquette? I did. Okay. You didn't just do some. You got a PhD, right? I did. Yes. Got the whole thing. Yeah. The whole so thing. more than some. Yeah. And the person you focused on was Elizabeth Gaskell. Was. So. And we had a brief conversation while I was badgering you to come on to our show. And uh, you said a couple of things that intrigued me. And I think hopefully we'll get, get to those a little bit later, how she dealt with social issues there. Um, 
in a way that perhaps was unique, and I think that was maybe the thrust of your dissertation. It correct? was. So why don't you do a couple things? May I would like you to give us just, you know, tell us who this author is, but then also the time she lived in, because I think that's a huge deal that she was in England uh, during this age. So why don't you, you just talk as long as you want. Sure. Well, not, maybe not as long as you want. But yeah, give me some parameters. <laughs> within reason, yes, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Elizabeth Gaskell uh, has been my adult life, pretty much, I would say. I went right from WLC to Marquette for a master's and then stayed for a PhD. And I was going to be a medievalist uh, originally, really? my master's. I was. Um, that's huh. where my sympathies were. And then when I started my PhD program, I connected with uh, the woman who I wanted to be my advisor. And she was a Victorianist. And I loved what she worked on. And um, her areas were literature and law. And I found those connections intriguing as well. And huh. so that's how that developed. And I discovered Elizabeth Gaskell through her classes. I took four classes from the same professor, and um, that's how it all began. So because her area, um, the professor who I worked under was literature and law, I started looking at what kinds of things are happening in England at this time legally, um, what kinds of rights do women have? What kinds of rights do they not have? Um, authority, representation, you know, things of that nature. And so just kind of took it from there. Um, so just some specs on Gaskell, I guess, to start. Uh, her years are 1810 to 1865. So right in that kind of heart of um, 19th century. Um, at that point, women were considered non-persons in the eyes of the law. And so um, you had more rights as a woman before you were married or even engaged than after um, in terms of property, uh, rights to your children, um, things of that nature. And so that intrigued me as well. Uh, women's voices. I, I like your use of things of that nature. You like nature. that? Yeah. Did I get it in twice now? <laughs> I yeah. think so. I'll, I'm stop I'm I'll stop trolling you. No, I think it's good. <laughs> um, Looking at uh, women's inability to testify sometimes in court, uh, the ways that they were and were not listened to just out in society were things that intrigued me. And so Gaskell herself um, was Unitarian. She was married to a Unitarian minister. And um, that intrigued me as well, too, because she had a more progressive household in terms of a woman being able to write and to research and have knowledge in addition to her domestic um, abilities. Her husband really encouraged her um, to pursue uh, her artistic endeavors. And, and she didn't shy away from, I mean, at one point had a pig and all, you know, I mean, I, I had served at a, an area in the rural area where uh, a woman did like things that we would normally think, oh, that's man's work, right? Mm -hmm. Like she got in. So mm -hmm. later when they bought that house, the uh, bigger house, mm -hmm. she had like nature out there yeah. and she wasn't afraid to say, yeah. okay, we're going to keep animals and stuff like that. So she jumped in. So she was kind of did everything. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. She was often very much torn between all of her different vocations in life because she saw herself very much as a wife, as a mother. She had um, several children, but she also saw her vocation being um, writing and influencing society through her work as well. And so that was a line that she was always walking very carefully and was always kind of struggling with feeling overly obligated um, to all of these different ventures. In the end, she always chose people over any kind of work. And so her obligations to family and friends were always of that nature. But, but her work as an artist, as a writer, was to serve people as well because she wrote social problem novels. I should probably quickly define that as well, too. So in England at that time, you had social problem novels, also called Condition of England novels, and they wrote about issues of uh, gender and class. And, and that'd the, be similar to Dickens then somewhat, mm -hmm. too, then yeah. with class. Yep. Yeah, Dickens dabbles in that, absolutely. And so um, that was sort of like her launch pad. And so her first novel, Mary Barton, um, I teach that quite a bit. She published six novels. Um, she got her start when her infant son passed away and her husband knew of her interest and ability in writing and he kind of nudged her, pushed her toward, um, toward that interest as a way to channel the energy. And so she did that. So um, Mary Barton uh, deals with gender and class. Ruth uh, was her second novel, deals mostly with inequities in gender. Um, it details, well, I should go back a little bit um, first. Mary Barton, if I'm going to go into these, Mary Barton discusses um, tensions between masters and men. Masters and men, not in the way that we think of it necessarily today, but masters being the factory owners, the mill owners, the men, of course, being the worker bees, as it were. And so she um, 
talks about the lack of ability of the masters to listen to the men uh, and their low pay and families starving and uh, those types of things. And then she lays a romance plot over that to also entertain and pull in the audience as well um, and has the heroine be quite active in that. So we can talk about that more mm -hmm. um, later if we want. Uh, Ruth, her next novel was actually burned um, by some people huh. afterwards. Um, it was it was burned and then it was accepted as, huh, you've pointed out some things that are in fact true. It follows uh, the story of a fallen woman, fallen woman being a woman who has sex before marriage. Obviously, the sexual double standard there is that there's no counter term for a man who has sex before marriage. And so um, Ruth is very naive. Women broadly were not educated about sex at that point in time. So when Ruth gets pregnant, uh, I think there's some confusion, you know, there mm -hmm. about how that all happens. And so she's very repentant, uh, but she still has to go to another town, assume a different identity, live a life of charity. So Gaskell, that novel is often um, criticized for being overly sentimental. Um, when in fact, Gaskell is also trying to show how ridiculous man's judgment is, man is in humankind, mm -hmm. not men specifically, um, how overly judgmental we are uh, in our judgment of other people and our double standards across gender and that sort of thing too. Um, so do you, would she be, now I should look up the years for it, but I sometimes in ethics use Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, Wollstonecraft is earlier. Of, okay. Yep. Because she'll yeah. get it a lot of the, you yep. know, the terms we use and how we apply them to yeah, men and women. Wollstonecraft is maybe, I don't do math quickly, but about 40 or so, give or take years earlier. Okay. So then, then at the point that Gaskell was actually publishing, not from when she was born. So. Okay. Um, uh, and then and I don't want to give any giveaways, but Ruth has a very sad ending. So it really kind of hits home to the audience that um, man judges much more harshly than God. Um, in fact, that's more or less a quote from one of her novels. Um, North and South is my favorite. I teach that one in my Victorian literature class. And that also lays a romance plot over uh, a labor plot as well. And so you have the masters and the men ultimately learning to communicate and to come together. Um, but before they learn to do that, there's a murder. And the murder is seen as the cautionary tale. Huh. When man chooses across classes not to be understanding, not to be empathetic, uh, then the worst happens. I'm reducing it, of course, but that's, that's <coughs> that a bit. Um, Wives and Daughters was, well, I'll, I'll, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sylvia's Lovers was another one. Um, Sylvia's Lovers I have never taught. Um, it has a really tough dialect. It's a Yorkshire dialect. And so it's really hard um, for students to get through. Um, they struggle sometimes even with her earlier novels that do um, much easier dialects in England. And, and I read that she did quite a bit of research on how to, this is not, these were not dialects that she would have necessarily grown up with. And Correct. She, she did her research. Okay. She and her husband were kind of dialect hounds. And so huh. when I teach a creative writing class here, which I might've mentioned before, and whenever students want to do dialect, I always virtually dissuade them and mm -hmm. say, don't even do dialect until you can actually do dialect, which is not going to be now. Mm -hmm. I don't even do dialect. So, you know, you've got to be a linguist. You've got to study it. Um, and so she and her husband were really well known for doing that well. So when she does it, you know, it's accurate, which is mm. nice. Huh. Um, so Sylvia's Lovers is another kind of lesser used one, but it's very sad um, and deals with um, more gender than class, I would say, in that one. Um, Cranford is kind of an outlier. That one's been adapted with Judy, Judy Dench um, on PBS, so some people know Cranford through that. And it follows the lives of a bunch of uh, women who have never married out outside of the city. And it's not as militant as her other novels. And so sometimes Cranford is written off as, oh, this is just the sillier, lighter novel where she's talking about these old spinsters. And again, I resist the term spinster because there's no comparable term for a man. But at the time, that would have been how they would have been referred to. Um, but by making these women who would have been othered, who would have been marginalized and considered not important in society, by making them the heroines of the novel that in fact was the act mm -hmm. right there. And then her last novel, Wives and Daughters, which I'd referenced before, um, it's 800 pages-ish. I know it's long, I'd have to go back and look, but it's like a chapter shy of being finished. She passed away right before it was finished. Um, and that one is much more Jane Austen-esque uh, in the way the plot carries along, but it also deals much more with gender than class, I would say, as a, as a general statement. And so. died fairly young, right, on, uh, a, on a trip? That she was... 55-ish, yeah, yeah. She actually, she passed away telling a story to her family, and she was quite literally saying, and then he died. 
Like it was something like that. I can't remember the exact quote, but she was describing a death and saying it. And then she had what I, I think was a heart attack. I'm trying to remember. Well, but. you know, I think a lot of us preachers would be like, I'd like to die in the pulpit. I guess, is that what like English professors think? I'd, I'd like to die telling a story. I would. In the middle of telling I a story. I want to die in my sleep. Well, that too. Like one less prank on Trisha. Like she wakes up, she's like, wait, get up. You know, we got to go to church or whatever. And then I'm dead. That'd be pretty funny, I think. That'd be hilarious. Um, um, I had a question. Can I ask a question? Go ahead. Is that okay. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned that she's addressing issues of of gender and class, and I'm I'm interested in how those connect because you you see that historically a lot of connections between those movements or authors having concerns um, with both. But the the first question would be: so she's got these concerns. Why fiction um, is it fiction because that was easier for a woman, you know, to get published writing at the time? Is it fiction because she thinks fiction is the better vehicle for kind of winning over her reader to her point of view, combination of that? But I always find that interesting when you look at history, um, why different authors choose the genre they choose mm-hmm. to accomplish their, their purpose. So why do, why do you think she went the, the fiction route she did? I think it's a little bit of both, but I'm going to land on mostly the latter. Um, whenever you're dealing with social issues, that's always a discussion for the artist. You know, do I put out a work of nonfiction? Uh, do I put out a host of essays, a political pamphlet? You know, what do I do? Or do I go and create something that's longer, more abstract to entertain? And I think either party gets frustrated with the other because I think that the pamphlet nonfiction people, generally speaking, can get frustrated with the fictionalized people saying, hey, issue X is super serious. We have to just address this issue and not worry about all this artistic stuff and these characters and these made-up plots and all those things. We have to take this seriously. I think that the artists on the other end get frustrated with, with that attitude because sometimes to pull people in, you've got to entertain them. And in order to put people, this will sound a little cliche, but to make people sympathize with other people, you've got to put them in other people's shoes. I mean, that's why any student, even if you're not an English major, English minor, I'm just a huge believer that any student needs literature. I mean, it's an easier sell to say that any student needs writing. Everyone going out in the world needs writing. I hope that's not a difficult sell for anyone. But I would also go one step further and say every student needs to study literature, not just to dabble in it or think about how they feel about a book at a book club. They need to study it (laughs) academically and be able to look at what these authors are doing technique-wise to pull you in and to get their message across. So for Gaskell, circling back to kind of, I think, the heart of your question, for Gaskell, I think she uses fiction because she thought it was going to be it would have more of an impact on her audience. She would get more audience members. She was writing to a middle-class audience. Um, Readership was a little bit more woman-heavy than man-heavy at that time, I think, for fiction. So she was going to get more woman readers, um, but certainly she would have gotten both. Um, She would have gotten the audience to sympathize with her, and she would have been able to, I think she could actually say more. You can say more when you are fictionalized something. You can get away with more. Um, Kind of, I don't know if this is a great example, but it's somewhat analogous. You're watching an SNL skit. Look how much, and part of that's because of the humor, certainly, but part of that, they can get away with so much more because they're not just putting out a pamphlet or a PSA saying, we think this is wrong or this is right. They can go way further. They can just be hyperbolic in ways you couldn't otherwise be if you were just having a conversation with someone. And show the absurdity of things. Exactly. And I think, I mean, that's ultra, you know, even Plato does that when he gets to stuff that might get him in trouble. He's going to have a dialogue Mm -hmm. that he can say, oh, this was just these guys talking. Yeah. I'm not necessarily saying this. You you got it, that something in that regarding fiction that I think is is very interesting. Um, you know, as something I try to get students to do, especially in ethics or Christ and culture, as we're reading a book, is you know to ask what what does this author think about human beings and how they operate. And sometimes you get that from the content of the book, but sometimes you also get that by the type of book the person tries to write. <clears throat> and uh, I think it you know that is something with fiction that says something about what, what the, how the author views a human being um, that, you know, she recognized if you want people to sympathize, with, which this is, you know, heart, emotional, sentiment, Hume type talk, um, you can't just have, you know, like if we're thinking philosophy in Immanuel Kant, Ikea catalog type case for, uh, for, for something. Um, as she's trying to do that then, 
um, and you mentioned she's writing for the middle class, and I'm, I'm guessing, based on the German side of things, you know, there's um, some cases that have been made that, you know, the Reformation actually kind of set back um, the autonomy of women somewhat because now the major outlet became the home, and the home is very structured, um, and you kind of have that solidified as like a, a middle class type life. Um, is is she, I'm guessing while she's writing, I mean, you want as an author, you probably want to have an audience for your book sells, and you know, um, but she's pr- probably particularly aiming at people who are not necessarily on board with what she's advocating. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And that brings up something I wanted to mention. So thanks for that kind of reminder there, maybe unknowingly. So her husband, as a Unitarian minister, the people in his... So her husband and father were Unitarian ministers. No, just her husband. Just her husband. Oh, I thought her father was too. Okay. So her uh, husband's congregants were often made up of the mill owners. And it was the mill owners that she was criticizing in her work. And so she had to walk this very difficult line of not antagonizing both his congregants and her future and current readers so much that they wouldn't read the work because then her project of sympathy would not be realized, would not be accomplished. She wanted people to have love for neighbor. Um, That wouldn't be accomplished at all if she's ticking them off by chapter two. They're not going to get to the end and the big revelations. Uh, And so she uses a lot of really interesting narrative techniques to kind of go a little bit far and then not quite backpedal, but assure the audience that, hey, middle-class audience, I get you. I'm one of you. I understand you. However, we have to see that the poor have X, Y, and Z complaints. And, you know, and it almost sounds sometimes like she's criticizing the poor when, in fact, she's still indicting her middle-class reading audience, but she's never doing it so far that they're going to put the book down. Hopefully, at least that's the aim. Yeah. So when when this comes up then, and I, I think you make an interesting point in there, um, I think one of the powers of literature, and it'd probably be right up there with travel, is that if we're going to love our neighbor, which I think Jesus said something about, um, you have to see them as neighbor, and not just see them as neighbor in a abstract or theoretical way. Yes, this is my neighbor. Um, but I think, as you've said, to be able to sympathize with them, um, to understand their their plight. Most of her readers, I'm guessing, uh, in their daily life probably were segregated from a lot of the types of people she's writing about, probably especially when it came to class. I mean, they may mm-hmm. have had contact with, with women in their home. Uh, or, I mean, was that not the case? Or is this, you know, in their neighborhoods, in their churches, they're probably not exposed to the poor more than you know passing them on the streets yeah they were pretty well segregated and so she did charity work and so she saw the poorest of the poor in their homes and so she was also really well known for being a writer of realist fiction right and so she was able to describe the plight of the poor in a way that would make it um sympathetic to the audience believable to the audience it wasn't she was never being super over the top um she was always describing things just as they were in ways that her audience would have had no idea. Um, now, what, um, what do you think the connection uh, between gender and class, why, why do those two keep coming up in her novels? Was it just two things she saw as problematic? Or did, was there something that tied those th- two things together in her mind, do you think? I would say both, um, but I think that there was significant overlap for women because a lot of the women that she, or many of the women she writes about are both, of course, women and lower class or working class, we would say. And so they would have kind of two whammies going against them in terms of their credibility. One of the things I talk a lot about is how she describes her heroines and gives them ways of doing things to make them credible tellers of truth uh, in their acts of heroism, etc. Because her reading audience would not have seen the women right off the bat as credible. Like if the women had come out in the beginning of any of her novels and said, you know, indicted society for what was going on, the audience would have 
pushed back right away and said, well, that's not credible. A woman can't say those things out loud in public. That's crazy. Um, but because she creates plot, she arranges plot in such a way to give women opportunity. She characterizes women in such a way as to make it believable based on the way she's described them throughout the text. Uh, she has narrators, and that's a whole separate conversation, too, we could get into, but all the narrative techniques she uses, she literally has narrators who are lobbying, sometimes heavy-handedly, sometimes less so, for justice, for the heroines. And so some of these women are, of course, both women and lower class. So they have two things going against them for society believing anything they have to say. And so for them to overcome those is quite a feat. And I think she always achieves that by at least the middle, if not the end of her texts. Now, the reception of her work, is this pretty well received by the general public? Or did, I mean, yeah. do a lot of people get what she's after and get upset they were upset her second novel Ruth that dealt with the fallen women because that was like one bridge too far for a lot of people at the time because of, of the sexual nature of it um, but again they came around pretty quickly and realized oh look at that she is kind of on to something you know that we're doing there so she was well received overall she was she's been accused both then and in the 20th century of being overly sentimental um, which is something that women are accused of being anyway even if they're not right there's that appeal to emotions that's just stereotypical there. Um, she's also been criticized for not supplying hard solutions. For instance, she doesn't supply an economic plan, right? Here's what the mill owners should do exactly with pay. Here's what they should do when they order their equipment. Here's how it could be safer. You know, she doesn't go into those things, but I think that's just a false way of criticizing someone because not everything is everyone's responsibility, right? She doesn't have to be the artist and the economist and the drawer up of, you know, political documents. She doesn't have to do all uh, those things. Does she have solutions, do you think, in... I mean, are there political solutions she would suggest, but she wants to keep them out of the work? Or do you think she primarily sees herself as a diagnostician, kind of saying, here's problems we need to be aware of? Primarily the latter, but she really believed, if she did have ways she wanted themselves politically, she did not have those come out necessarily in her work, because she really believed in man helping one another and sometimes people will come to her and say oh you really ought to lobby or help us with this legislation coming through and she would say i'm not i mean i'm doing some heavy paraphrasing here but she would say i'm not gonna waste my time on waiting for parliament to do something i'll have more of an influence if i help you know my neighbor figure out that he or she should be delivering bread to their poor neighbor she thought that would have more of a lasting influence and i, I think you know there's an importance to that too that oftentimes um, when you get to the second part of offering the solutions, you can really alienate. Mm -hmm. um, and in the solutions, lose sight of neighbor um, because you, you then come up with these sweeping changes that are going to fix everything. And sometimes you forget who you're doing them for or why you're doing them. But I, I think that that's interesting as a critique because I guess a lot of my favorite authors or thinkers are diagnosticians. I, you know, even... Like a Kierkegaard, I don't necessarily agree with that, where Kierkegaard goes with everything. But he's pretty darn good at figuring out, like, what's some of the problems. Um, well, and I think it's a double standard, too. I don't think we criticize people who are giving us political action plans for not doing it artistically. Yep, right? Yep. Not everyone should be doing everything. And, and that, what, um, if we can segue a little bit, what then, uh, let's say, as a Christian... Uh, is important for us to recognize about the power of story and what the power of story tells us about human beings um, and why then the ability both to uh, be able to take in story and create story is necessary. Um, can we learn from the way that she, she went about this? It, uh, <clears throat> I always get a kick out of, um, uh, I was confused, Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis. Upton Sinclair writes The Jungle, right? I think so. And, you know, The Jungle's about, like, the meatpacking plants in Chicago. Right, right, right. But he writes it to show how bad life was for the workers. Um, but at the end of the day, what The Jungle's really known for is reforms in American law about how we prep food. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he says, I appeal to the country's heart, but I hit their stomach. Um, and uh, and it, it can be... Uh, you know, story can be hard because you don't know where it's going to take things. But I would say, even in our own day, um, you look at some of the big movements that have developed or when there's been cultural or societal uh, game changers, often it comes from the realm of 
story, whether that be movie, um, music, um, literature, or uh, even um, photography, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I mean, or art, these are stories as well. What, uh, why would you say Christians especially um, should be cognizant of, of, of that? Any of that. I just yeah. threw a lot at you. Yeah, there's a lot there. I had several things to say. We'll see if I can circle back yeah. to them. Um, stories are access point for everything, just to kind of throw that out there, whether you're secular or Christian. But I think the burden on a Christian is even more so. Um, Gaskell, I would say, plotted her stories to make her fellow man more accountable to their fellow man. But she saw her readership, what I usually refer to as her reading jury, because I pull in some legal terminology into what I do with her. Um, She wanted her reading jury to be less judgmental. And so the real life readers, they were part of God's master plot, right? This is all plot. This is God's whole master plot. And so where do we fit into that? So everything we do could be considered vocation under that, right? How are we helping our neighbor? How are we using our skills to do that? how do we get students thinking about them in college right away is that they go out and they serve their neighbor and they use their skills and they take a literature class, a psych class, a theology class, and they do these things and they pull them together and they become more empathetic human beings. That's a broad answer to a lot of questions. No, and, and I like that. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is when we start children with books, right, children's books, we almost always start them with fiction. I don't know a lot of people that start their kids with nonfiction. And I think it's it just says something about how we as human beings actually grow as a whole human being, you know, and not just as, um, you know, understanding facts or, or, or other things like that. And I think, you know, you're kind of hitting on that with, with students being able to engage with that too. It's how we understand others and it shapes us. I... A uh, real quick anecdote, I have a two-year-old, so I'm learning all the things the little ones do. And so we read, of course, every night before bed, a lot of Star Wars I was telling Mike before. And um, she wants to, she sees something in the book on the page and she says, I hold that, I hold that. And trying to explain two-dimensionality and you can touch it, you can't hold it. And at one point she put, I know our listeners can't see me doing this, but you guys can. She put her face and her hands right on the book. She was trying to enter into <laughs> the story and it just shows how natural natural it is we want to be a part we see ourselves as part of a larger story deep down whether we're acknowledging that or not which play make believe all those things exactly in the development of a child yeah. exactly and I, you know I, along those same lines too you know if you think of the gospels um i mean jesus primarily when he's teaching goes to story right he goes mm-hmm. to parable um and i wonder if sometimes as as church or as christians we miss out on that when we become very informational, like we're going to get this information across to you and then you'll say that's good information and we miss out on, uh, you know, how, what really moves people or gets people to understand things. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that I think is, um, can be helpful for us to understand. What about for, uh, the Christian, um, you know, there's kind of this thing Jesus says about engaging with the world around us and with neighbor, and uh, especially if we're kind of in a bubble, we're largely with other Christians. I mean, it would never happen to us that um, maybe, Mike, like we went through a certain system and then we ended up as part of that system at a college and most of our friends are fellow pastors. And um, for understanding the non-Christian neighbor, um, why might story in many instances be more helpful than reading a book about a different culture, like a nonfiction book. Relatability is the first thing that occurs to me. You'd be able to, I think some of the things that would, if I'm reading your question correctly, some of the things that, right. <laughs> that would distract us if we're dealing with another culture, either in real life or in a nonfiction work, we're distracted by those things that are considered other, right? Different customs, different skin color, different religion, different anything, right? Or no religion. We're distracted by those things. But if you can put that in a fictionalized setting and you can create a whole world, then you can see yourself as reader in that world, in that fictionalized scene, in ways that you wouldn't put yourself in a nonfiction piece, whether it's a book, a pamphlet, a, you know, what have you. Yeah, and I, I, I'm thinking, you know, Jesus does that with Samaritan stories all the time. Mm-hmm. He loves to do that. But I'm thinking, especially, you know, uh, well... 
I mean, we all get bombarded now with generational stuff. And, well, here, you know, this school year now, iGen is coming, and iGen, you know, here's some facts about iGen. But it's kind of interesting to go, well, what's the stories they really dig? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what's the movies they're really drawn to? What's the art they're um, interested in? And uh, I try and, to use a lot of examples in class that they wouldn't expect me to use, not because it's novel, but because I feel like that is going to pull my students in. And it's stuff that I'm watching and enjoying, uh, you know, as well. And I think you almost learn more about them because, I mean, that those stories then show their anxieties, their concerns, their hopes. Well, and it, it kind of catches them off guard, too. And I don't do it to be edgy. I do it to get their attention. We were doing an Elizabeth Gaskell novel last semester in one of my classes and just off the cuff I found a comparison that I thought made sense to Game of Thrones so I made the comparison and I think a couple of students who weren't totally paying attention in that moment were brought you know to their senses and thought wait a minute there's a connection yeah because this work of art over here is talking about this which this old-timey work of art over here is also talking about now I make no bones that they actually are an analogous you know situation sure. but there are components of any works of art where the artist the director the writer the whomever is trying to achieve something similar and then i have only a few tools to do that with right it's plot it's character it's narration it's going to look different on the screen and on the page but they're the same kinds of issues and, and i like that because it also brings up something else that's interesting to me with fiction um some books get old right away some books don't really age they they stay um they still suck you in. What, um, you know, and so you're teaching Brit Lit and primarily most of it you said is, if I remember before, 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, what is the appeal or what helps a story to transcend time and how can that help us um, be better travelers, not only across geographic boundaries or cultural boundaries, um, but to feel a kinship, you know, with man across with the human race. Across time. Yeah, on a shallow first response is it's got to be entertaining. I mean, that's not an academic response, but it's you've got to get people to want to read the thing again and again. So it's got to have interest for the first reading and the 30th reading. So are the characters well-drawn? Is the plot well-paced? You know, things along those lines. Um, after that, I would say a deeper answer, which isn't so deep, is, is it dealing with issues that do transcend time? Um, It doesn't have to be gender in class, but it could be. Could it be some kind of existential question about who we are in the face of God? I would say normally, yes. Almost everything asks that question on some level. That's something that any reader at any moment can relate to. You may come to different conclusions depending upon what time period you're in and historically what's happening, but you should be able to plug those concerns into a variety of things. Um, Tale of Two Cities, as an example for my colleague and friend over here which is not war of the worlds which is not war of the worlds if you learn anything from this take that away um that's one of the things dickens was doing when he wrote it he wrote it in roughly i'm shooting from the hip here let's say 1840 50 just um off the top of my head and he was writing it about the french revolution however he was writing it to current English readers and he was warning them that if we if we don't fix government if we don't fix the way we treat each other we don't fix these things right now we're going to end up being what we criticize France for being 50 60 years ago so those same issues they should be um, timeless in that cliche sort of way we uh and I sent you none of you guys replied but I sent in telegram an episode idea on uh David Foster Wallace the uh um, present tense, but which becomes authority in American usage in one of his anthologies. And I don't know if you've read much David Foster Wallace, but he's one of my favorite Just authors. Just a little, and, yeah. And uh, but he gets in authority in American usage. It's a book review of a dictionary, so it's kind of like a joke thing he's doing. But he gets at the power of language, and I think one of the interesting things you you mentioned with this too um, is what we can learn by looking at the the words and the terms and the labels that we use mm-hmm. um, if we're if we want to be able to do a, a personal but also a cultural societal religious like self-diagnostic what um what's some of the value of you know looking at because you you mentioned she points out we don't use some terms for men that we would use for for women mm-hmm. um, but how do you learn to do that either I mean that's a very um, her doing that is not easy, right? To to sit and look at 
well, we say this for that, but, but that for this. Um, what would be, you know, what enabled her to do that so well? I think she was a really good interrogator and observer of the world around her, which is something we can all, you know, certainly learn from, not to just take things as they are. Um, seeing her fellow sister women would be how you refer to that again. Again, even little things like that, instead of saying fellow man, you know, <laughs> changing those terms so that they're actually applicable to gender. Um, she saw her fellow, her sister women, right, and looking at their struggles and decided to do something about it, knowing she might take some flack for it. Um, she was filled with a lot of anxiety over it, actually. She was known for sending something to get published and then leaving for the continent <laughs> because she didn't want to hear any of the scathing. And the scathing stuff would just kind of go away because we're still studying her now. She obviously stood that test of time, um, but she wasn't immune to those things, certainly. And so I think we do have to not just accept things as they are, not look for negativity, certainly, but interrogate um, things and, and question I think that's something that we should be teaching students, right? Um, will my students ever read Tale of Two Cities again? I don't know. Um, I hope they enjoyed it the first time. My goal isn't that they read it five more times. But my goal is that they read other books and apply the things that we talked about to other books and apply the way we interrogated that text or any other text to the way they look at and question the world around them. Right? It's larger than just the study of books, certainly. And that, that gets to kind of something as we... Uh, maybe a, a question as we kind of close out with we uh, you know we're, well we're in an educational environment where we can talk till we're blue in the face about the liberal arts or humanities uh, many you know um, I mean from grade school through high school curriculums have been adapted in many ways to to turn out professionals um, you know I don't want to get to uh, my own politically and I, I know I'm usually on my own on this but um, in many ways we've corporatized education to, to turn out workers <clears throat> right mm -hmm. this is we ask the labor force what do you want and then we shape education to that um, you have the privilege of being like us in one of those disciplines that's often viewed as being alright we'll do a little bit of that but uh, you know it's almost secondary to what people really need for life we're the extra right yeah what um, what would you say that we miss out on, whether it be as citizens or just at being a whole person, being a Christian, if we uh, specifically with fiction, which we've been focused on, mm -hmm. if we miss out on the opportunity um, to sit and, you know, read a book that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our profession, um, to to read a story, you know, uh, what, what, did, what are we not equipping our students to do or what are we maybe setting ourselves up for societally mm -hmm. um, in, in such an approach? I hope that we can all send similar messages in our humanities classes about training students and the skills that we teach are certainly there. Um, and I do spend time explaining to students, yes, we're enjoying culture and we'll talk about the you know, abstract issues here, but you are learning skills and here's what you can apply to your job, the critical thinking, the writing, the speaking. And we go through all those to be pragmatic about it because students do have to go, the English major does have to go into, a, you know, a job interview right. and explain to someone who needs that explanation how those skills are transferable. So I do hit that. Um, but in terms of the reading, they need to understand their fellow man. They need to know how to interrogate the world around them. Uh, they need to learn how to empathize with other people. Uh, some years ago, I had a nursing student who was taking my, was the genre studies fiction course. And this was, she was very nice and I think would have given her all to any course, no matter her interest level. She got it. She, she played along and enjoyed doing so. Um, but she really played along. Like she clearly was buying in. And probably about halfway through the semester, she raised her hand and we had just finished reading. This kind of serves my purposes. It happened to be Mary Barton, which is an Elizabeth Gaskell novel, but it could have been a different novel that could have happened too. And she raised her hand and this was unprovoked, unsolicited. It felt like I had paid her off beforehand to do this <laughs> because it was one of those classroom moments that you can't write. It just kind of presents itself. And she said, by reading this text and thinking about these things, I'm becoming a more sympathetic person. And then the connection we made is that that's going to make you a better nurse, right? I mean, we need 
nurses who have good bedside manner. We need businessmen and women who are different, who are just not crunching numbers and doing all the things that business people do that I know very little about, right? We need what's going to make a WLC business person different or just a Christian, Lutheran Christian business person different. Well, they need to have looked at the world through someone else's eyes. And that will inform all of their interactions with everyone that they work with, with their clients, with their boss, with their fellow workers. Um, that makes a long-term difference to me. Yeah, and, and be able to read people too. It's not even, not just sympathy, but a broad, take sympathy in broader terms, be like, where's that person's, where's that person from? Not just, oh, I feel sorry. You know what I mean? And, and that's what you meant too. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a light bulb moment for me when I realized everybody's trying to justify themselves, whether they know it or not. And so the, the athlete who was there slouched down and, uh, you know, he's, he's here to play sports and, you know, I just got to take this class. I can look at that and I can say, um, you know, what a jerk. Right. And then, and how insulting that he would come to my class and whatever. I tell them to take it. Right. But then I would say, <laughs> But then I, it dawned on me because I was, I was a boy that age. Um, there, he may be not wanting to try because trying is going to assume the possibility of failure. Mm -hmm. And so it's better just to play it cool and not try. So I just showed him respect. You know, that's what they're looking for anyway. And often that actually opens somebody up and, and then to be able to read somebody like that, um, in the world, in whatever vocation you find yourself is actually, it, it's does open you up to more sympathy, of course, but just to be able to read people, I think seeing more characters makes you more well-rounded mm -hmm. and you appreciate the other people are, well, are, are, are complicated people. You can read your and, audience yeah, better. And you yeah. don't label people so easily because mm -hmm. you've, you've seen, um, you've seen a novelist, um, open up a character that in the first chapter you thought was this way, but by the end of the book, you appreciated that character more, whatever. So I, I think there are some people skills there. And I, I think to see, I think one of the, the challenges to just to get back to, you know, to avoid seeing our neighbor as theoretical or abstraction, um, to see the humanity in our neighbor. And I think, you know, it sounds like Glasgow picks two categories that it's very important to do that. And one of the things is it's hard to, uh, um, across gender identify. I mean, I, um, I've never been a woman, right? Um, Noted. So, I've never so far. Been, <laughs> I've so never, far. I've never been a woman in 19th century England. Right. Uh, with class, we, we tend to think we understand different classes, but really anything outside of our own economic class, unless we've had a broad experience, can be very difficult to understand. And I think as Christians, um, what recognizing, you know, everyone has human value and bears the image of God. And we can see even in America how inconsistent we've been with that, that we'll talk about inalienable rights and human rights. But we've not always had the best track record of treating everybody as, as I mean, you see the comedy bits where they say, hey, should we go to war with this country? And someone says, yeah. And then they say, where is that country on the map? <clears throat> and they can't, you know, point to it. Um, that regardless of what um, social convention is or was at a time or um, economic conditions, it, it's really hard to carry out our Lord's commission if we're not able to to see those people well. And odds are, most of us, there's just certain boundaries we can't transcend outside of, of good story. Mm -hmm. um, what a... If you got, if you only had to pick one uh, Glasgow novel, and I, I can, or Glasgow novel, I can sympathize with this because if you were to tell me what are my favorite authors, what should I read? I'm gonna, I'm gonna list off ten things. But let's say we have a listener, and they say, oh, you know what? I haven't read any of those. I'm somewhat uh, interested in, in, in reading. So you've got to pick one, um, and maybe it's because you think it's the best intro to it. Maybe it's because you just think it's the one that is gonna do the most good for someone. Where would you point them? North and south. Not to be confused with 
Patrick Swayze's North and South <laughs> from the 80s. This is not about the Civil War. This is the industrial North of England and the agricultural South. Um, it's about 400 pages or so, and it's a good representation. It's not accused of being overly sentimental, so if that's something that you think might annoy you, um, this is not going to go as much in that direction. Again, it's a masters versus men labor plot with a romance uh, kind of drizzled over that uh, very strong heroine across the novel, uh, masters and men learning to communicate better. And there's a really strong uh, male worker named Nicholas Higgins, who Gaskell uses as basically her mouthpiece for telling Christians, middle-class Christians at that time to communicate to each other. Um, very similar. There's a kind of a less well-spoken one dialect wise. Um, uh, but there's one of Mary Barton um, named John Barton who does that as well too. And there's a long monologue where he's literally accusing um, the, the Christian mill owners of setting bad examples, hypocritical examples. And, and he says, you know, when I was little, I wanted to learn my Bible. I wanted someone to teach me. I tried to learn how to read and I was almost there. And I was, I was game for this. I was game for being a good person and trying to be a Christian. But then I saw that the wealthy Christians around me, they weren't living like they were reading the Bible. And so he talks about the confusion and the lack of education and um, it's a powerful thing. So Nicholas Higgins is sort of the, the upgraded, more articulate version even of that uh, in North and South. And there's a great BBC film adaptation after you read the novel. After, yeah. Four yep. hours long, one episode. There are four one-hour episodes and it's brilliant. All right. I think I've said last thing a few times, but last, last thing. And this is something I think Mike and I, when we've gone out and presented or talked to people, we've probably um, brought up too. So now you get to speak to pastors. we got a lot of pastors listening to this. Um, pastors are busy. They don't always get a ton of time to read. They've got to pick um, carefully what they're reading. Why should uh, pastors be reading more fiction? Pastors need to read fiction because they need to be able to relate to a variety of people. They want to, They should stay in touch with array of experiences from their congregants. They should keep reading to not be stale. They should keep reading so they can include interesting and new examples in their sermons. Uh, and it's intellectually stimulating. You know, the congregants have to know that you are also intellectual, <coughs> that you are also going to challenge them with new ideas and that you are in the world engaging uh, and that you can have a good discussion about that. Seems like maybe she had that thought through already. Like I didn't say I was going right. to ask that. No, though. no, that's right. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Rebecca. I think this was very good for for Wade. I think he loves talking fiction, so I think I can see he's been well behaved. I've written down a few episode ideas. He's, actually, he's been well behaved. I, he has been stimulated. He, you even used the word heroin a couple times, and he didn't make any jokes. You know how hard it was for me not to make right. heroin. So jokes he has been on his best behavior, and the reason is because he's been engaged. You must be a very good teacher in your class then, if you can <laughs> engage somebody like Wade. And yes, no, and I think there are a few interesting uh, um, episode ideas to come out. And I think I also should be commended. There's a lot of opportunities for me to talk about labor and the labor movement. And I, I behave. You kept, you kept your I politics to Bernie. yourself. Yeah. No, You've been good. restrained. Yeah. So, well, we good. thank you for coming. And now the big test is we're supposed to end a certain way. Not every guest remembers it. Um, so this is your little hint, your cue. But as we think about the power of story, whether it be Elizabeth Gaskell or someone else, as we think about um, fiction and, and, and why Christians should be interested in that, why college students need that as part of their education, at the end of the day, what's really the only thing we can do? Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round won't get me down.
don't care what 